We're going to be in Luke chapter 22 today, verses 7 through 20. Uh, go ahead and flip there in your Bible um, and be ready to follow along as you are. I'll just kind of set the stage a little bit for this. The, uh, the, the, the idea here or the, the tone is about to change, and so I want us to kind of get an overview again of what Luke is intending to do. Uh, he set out in the beginning of his gospel to provide an orderly account. That's what he says, to provide an orderly account of Jesus' life that would allow his reader, Theophilus, to, to trust or to believe what he had heard. He wanted him to have confidence in it. And so that's what he's done. In fact, there's a number of different ways we could walk through it and see this orderly account. Uh, but, but one of the ways that I've been breaking it down uh, most recently is just the seeing him established in these covenantal offices, these roles that God established over his covenant people, the prophet, priest, and the king. And so in chapters one through four, we see Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one that was coming to, that was promised to come and fulfill those roles. In chapters four through nine, we see him, in fact, the focus is on him as prophet. And in all of, in all of Luke, there's this process that he kind of walks through that First four chapters establish his identity, and then about halfway through four, working through uh, the end of chapter nine, we really begin to see him being presented as the prophet. He's going around working powerful miracles, and he is preaching truth. He's professing truth, and the people are receiving him as a prophet. In fact, they say, or or when Jesus asks, who do they say that I am? Like, who do the masses, who do the people say that I am? Uh, He's told they think you're a prophet. And he doesn't deny that. He doesn't reject that at all. In fact, he seems to receive it. But who do you say that I am? And they say that we, we think you're the Christ. He's, yes, I'm a, I'm a prophet. I receive that. But I'm more than just any prophet. I am the prophet. I'm the, the one that has been anointed, the one that has been promised. Well, then he turns his eyes to Jerusalem, and we begin to see his ministry from uh, Galilee on the way to Jerusalem in 9 through 19, and, his, and, and the focus Luke gives us is the teaching. Like We see a whole lot less miracles worked, and we hear a whole lot more teaching from him. And over and over, that teaching centers on is built out of this kingdom that he's come to establish. So much so that we no longer are hearing the testimony that he's a prophet, but they're beginning to see him and view him as a king to the point that when he comes into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, they receive him as king. So that he, he comes in and they're praising and Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the highest and, and, and praising him as king. So we've seen him established by Luke as Messiah, as the Christ, the son of God. We've seen him established as prophet and as king. And then in chapters 19 through 21, which we've been studying most recently, he, he, his first stop in Jerusalem is the temple. And in fact, in Luke, all we see in his ministry in Jerusalem is his entering into the temple. And then every day he's in the temple And he's basically preaching against the hypocrisy of the Judean system, of the temple worship, of the Jewish leaders, the priests, the high priests, the scribes, the rabbis. And he demonstrates that these people are are, uh, empty, they're not to be followed, and he presents himself as the one who can hold the role of mediator. He presents himself as the one who must be trusted, who must come, you must come to him, you must come to the Father, to God, through him. He sets himself up as the true high priest. And you can go back and I could go into way more detail. I don't have time for that today. But, but the thing is, you can see this happen through the course of Luke's gospel. And in each case, in each 
presentation where we hear people saying, this is who we believe him to be, this is who we see him to be. In each of these instances, it's not that Jesus ever holds back. He doesn't ever reject it. He never says, no, that's not true. He seems to receive it, but there's more. There seems to be more. He is the prophet who speaks for God. He is the the, the king who rules with God's authority. He is the priest that mediates between us and God. And, And this is vital for the Jewish people to get. They're the ones that are in covenant. They're the ones that have this contractual agreement. They're the ones in this relationship with God. And they totally missed it. They missed it so much so that they rejected him completely. And spoiler alert, I mean, we know this is coming. We know that they're going to reject him ultimately to the point where they're going to hang him on a cross and have him crucified. But Jesus knew that this was part of the plan. He knew it was coming because he knew that there was more. He's more than just the prophet, priest, and king. As important as that is, there's more. And we're going to look at that today in chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. The day came of unleavened bread on which Passover, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 22, it says this, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water uh, we'll meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. The Passover was a massive feast that every Jewish person, that, that, that all of the nation would have been observing. This was, this was on the scale, I think it was even larger than Christmas is for Americans. Passover was for Jewish people. It was a bigger, broader concept. It was a much more intentional, purposeful, meaningful celebration. This, this Passover was Always, it was always about them looking back and remembering what God had done for them. It was a time to remember that God had, by his own power, saved them. By his own power, determined that he would lead them out and remove them from the oppression and the slavery that they were enduring under Egypt. They were miserable. They were suffering. They were hurting under the, under the heavy hand of the Egyptians. And they were praying and crying out to God, deliver us, bring us out from here. And he did. He chose one of his own, Moses, and sent him in and called them out. And when Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, he stood in opposition against Pharaoh. Moses didn't, although he was a figurehead, but God did. God stood in the face of Pharaoh and said, These are my people. I will have them from you. There's nothing you can do to stop me. And they were to then remember this. And so every year, this massive festival, this massive feast, where it was one of three celebrations where all of Israel was expected to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and celebrate. So the city would swell by hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people. The the city would swell. There's a huge crowds. And Jesus, as was his tradition, was following and observing the law. And the time of Passover comes. 
and he wants to observe it. In fact, he wants it so much, not letting anything get in the way. If you were here last week, you, you remember that we touched on the fact that this was his plan in opposition to the plan of Judas and the, and the Jewish leaders and Satan. He is going to observe the Passover. We pick it back up in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let me just point out, I have earnestly desired. So in the, literally in the original language, this is I have desired desire. Like I ha- they're, they're being emphatic. They're seeking to, he's seeking to demonstrate how much he wants this. This is, this is um, divine decree. I want this. There's nothing going to stand in the way of this because I want this so deeply. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows what's coming. For I will tell you, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Twice there we're already beginning seeing him looking forward to the time where uh, the kingdom is fulfilled until the kingdom is established. That already but not yet kingdom, that, that time when the not yet is fulfilled. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So here they are, sitting at dinner at this Passover meal. They would have, everything would have been going as normal, as expected. There was the passing of the cups, the eating of unleavened bread. Everything's, everything's happening as they would expect. Until Jesus changes it up a little bit. Now they already know, he's already talked about that he's going to suffer. They already know that that's coming. Jesus knows this is coming. He knew this would be his last meal before he was crucified. He's not surprised by the fact that what's going to happen in the garden later. He's not caught off guard. In fact, as you, you all know this, this picture. You all know this, this instant in part because of the paintings that have been done to de- depict it, to, to show us what it might have looked like as they gathered at the table. We call that the Last Supper. And so, so people look at this and they say, well, this is the Last Supper. And maybe that's why Jesus desired it so much, but I, I, don't, I don't think that was it. Jesus knew he was going to suffer. He knew he wasn't surprised by the fact that this would be the last meal he ate. He's got purpose in it. He's got intention in it. This is the last Passover he will observe before his crucifixion. So it's substantial. When you, when, when, when you gather around someone's uh, uh, deathbed or when someone knows death is near, they suddenly are not worried about the pleasantries anymore, are they? Like, just imagine you're laying on your deathbed. Are you going to let your... Friends and your family, the, the thing that you're going to want them to remember you by is that, man, I wish I'd have kept my house cleaner. I, I really wish I had saved up more money in the bank. Like, is that what you're thinking when, when you know your life is coming to an end? No. He's looking at this Passover, recognizing it's the last Passover he's ever going to to observe until the fulfillment in in the kingdom. He knows that this is significant. There's something that must be done because this is not just the last Passover, but the first communion. You see, what he's about to do is transition from the old covenant 
the one that had been established at Sinai, overseen by a king and a priest and prophets, to a new covenant administered and overseen by him, the priest, the king, and the prophet. All of these covenantal offices tied up in him, him coming to tell us and show us that this is going to be the very beginning of a new covenant. See, even more than just this being the last Passover, Jesus, I think, was desiring this because this is the first communion. The Passover we looked back. The Passover remembered. There's, 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 there's ties between these two ideas. The Passover looks back. The Passover remembers. It remembers the power of God. It remembers the, the, the suffering and the shame and the, and the problems that they faced. It remembers the power exercised on their behalf. It remembers the plagues. Plagues brought against Egypt's gods. And our God, the God of the heavens, stands against them and defeats them all and shows them to be powerless in front of him. Until one final plague, the plague of the firstborn, where God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, prepare the people. On this night, this evening, I want you to kill a lamb, and I want you to take the blood, and I want you to paint your doorposts, and I want you to be ready to go. I want you ready to leave, but I want you to eat that lamb and eat unleavened bread because you don't, don't have time to be putting yeast in bread and waiting for it to rise. You need to, you need to be ready to leave. You see, the Passover looks back at this moment where God exercised his power in such a way that Egypt, the Egyptians knew they must let the people go. That they, must let, that they were not powerful enough to stand. God says, if you have the blood of the lamb painted across your doorposts, then when the Spirit comes in, he will pass over them. But if there's a door without the blood painted on the doorposts, the firstborn male of every home, every house, and not just the Egyptians, but even the servants. Everyone's firstborn will be taken from them. And the next morning as the sun comes up, their Egyptians were in mourning and they were wailing because they had never known death like this. But no Israelite child, no Israelite firstborn had been touched. And the Passover remembered that. It remembered that when they had been sent out of Egypt, that as they went, <laughs> Pharaoh hardened, it was so hard of his heart, and Pharaoh so arrogant and spiteful grew angry. He's like, we must get them back. And then he assembles his army and chases after them. The Passover remembers that they come to the Red Sea, and here's the Red Sea, and they, 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 they can't do anything because behind them is the army, and before them is the sea. And God, by his power, parts the sea so that they cross on dry ground and are able to make it to the other side. And then the waters rush over the Egyptian army and drown them all, and the most powerful army of the day is defeated, not because they fought, not because they had power, not because it was their might, but because God defeated the Egyptians on their behalf and they were freed. See, the Passover remembered. And as he sits in this room on this fateful night, on this very important night, this night that he desired to observe the last Passover in the first communion, Jesus wanted them to remember. 
He wanted him, them to remember that he, Jesus, is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he has given himself to be our sacrificial lamb by whose life and death we can be saved. Kings, to be, they, they sit on thrones. They don't die for their people. Priests are to be revered and respected. We don't touch them. I, I mean, even as a preacher, this is funny to me. Well, it's not funny. It's really kind of sad, ironic, really. Even as just a preacher, I get this treatment that I'm like, people try to watch their mouth in front of me because, well, I don't want to cuss in front of him. He, he talks to God. I, 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 people think that I, I'm supposed to have some special treatment. I don't know if it happens to the other pastors in our church, but I know it happens to me. And, and the reality is I'm just another, another guy in the church. But priests were revered. Given special privileges and places of privilege, and there were there's no way they would have died for anyone. The prophets were killed in Jerusalem. We heard Jesus say when he was coming into Jerusalem, we heard him say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. We know that they died. They died on behalf of their message, not on behalf of anyone. Jesus is showing us in this passage as he closes out the covenant with this observance of the last Passover and the beginning of a new covenant and the observance of the first communion. He's showing us that he, the prophet, the priest, and the king is the one who will die and whose blood will pay the price and who will seal this covenant for our good and his glory. See, Jesus didn't just come to sit in a position of power and prestige. This is the very thing he came to do. To die in our place and for our sin. The prophet who speaks for God, who is the very living word of God. The priest who stands and mediates between us and God, who we find peace with God through, who we have access with God, to God through the king who rules with God's authority and can command us to obedience was offered on our behalf. And he offers this communion in replacement of the Passover so that we can remember. So that we can slow down in the whole force of of the world that we live in, 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 in front of the whole force of all that's happening around us, so we can stop and remember. Remember. Communion is a reminder that we are all sinners who need a Savior. It's really easy to begin to think that we don't need a Savior, that somehow we have achieved some level of holiness that doesn't need redemption. I'm a good guy. I don't really sin that much anymore. I've, especially not those blatant, like, non-socially acceptable sins. Like, I've got those under control. You know, I'm, I'm a bit gluttonous. I eat a little too much. In fact, I try to eat my feelings. I seek to comfort myself with food. I expect food to do something for me only God can. That's not really that bad, is it? I seek to exercise control in areas that 
I have no power to control and I get frustrated and worried and anxious when it doesn't go my way. That's not really that bad, is it? I look to other gods. It's the root of every sin. And it plagues every one of us. The reality is that this passage doesn't exist if if we aren't sinners who need a Savior. Jesus never would have had to pour out his blood. He would have never had to take on flesh. He would have never had to be a Savior if we weren't sinners who needed saving. The psalmist kind of picked this up that not only are we not are we all sinners who need a Savior, we, we can't save ourselves. We, we, this, this needing a Savior part is very important. We all need a Savior. Not only do we need a Savior for ourselves, we, we don't have within us to save anyone else. I can come, I can serve as much as I want. The other pastors, the deacons, the people in this church can come. We can serve, we can preach, we can proclaim, we can do what we can do, but we can't save anyone. All we can do is point them to a Savior. And the psalmist understands this. He picks it up. I'll just focus on a couple of verses. They'll be on the screen behind me. But it says in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8 and 9, it says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We cannot pay the price. Our sin is too great. The offense against a holy, righteous, perfect God is too steep. If we depend upon ourselves, all we will ever see is the pit. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. The cross of Christ is the great equalizer. It levels the ground. There is no one here better than another. Yet, why, yet, yet, yet we still struggle with things like gossip and, 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 and uh, libel and looking down on one another with disdain and Regardless of your lineage, your ethnicity, your intelligence, your wealth, or position in culture, we are all the same. And the destiny we face is the same. The pit. See, the Passover may remind us of God's deliverance from, of Israel from Egypt. It, it may recall to, to the Jew the, the power that he worked on their behalf there, but communion reminds us we aren't just delivered from the oppressive hands of other people, but, the, but from the very wrath of God that our sin has wrought. The very sin, the very wrath of God that our sin deserves. His justified wrath sending us to the depths of a pit. We don't just need to be delivered out of a circumstance. We don't just need to be delivered from the oppression that people bring. We need to be delivered from the eternal punishment that our sin brings. We have to have a Savior or we face the eternal pit. 
There's no, uh, there's no other way. We can't do anything to ransom ourselves or anyone else. The cost is too high. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we have to remember this. We have to remember this. Communion is a reminder that salvation has been made available through Jesus Christ What horrible news it would be if every time we drank it, we recognized our sin, but there was no hope, right? How horrible would it be if this was the end of the message, that that we don't even have a number two here? You got the pit, drink the cup and remember it. That'd be horrible news. There would be no message to proclaim. Remember, this is not just the Last Supper. This is the First Communion. Jesus did not die, and that was it. Jesus died for a purpose. He died so that he could be the sacrificial lamb. He died in our place and for our sin. He suffered so that our suffering would end. He took on our sin so that we could have his righteousness. Listen, just think of it in these terms. If if Jesus, if not for Jesus doing this work, I mean, what would... What hope would we have? But more than that, let's just consider again the righteousness and the holiness of God. Our God is righteous and holy. There is no sin in him. He sets the standard. He's the one that determines right from wrong. He's the one that determines and judges acceptable and unacceptable. He's the one whose wrath is justified. This is the God of the Bible. He must be that. If he ceases to be holy and perfect and righteous, he's no different than us and a sinner that cannot save anyone. He must be holy and righteous. He must be able. He must be powerful enough. We are not powerful enough. We do not have capability. We we, we can't make a, a dead person live. There must be power to save. And so he must be perfect and righteous and he must be uh, uh, powerful enough to do it. But what if he is these two things? He's holy and righteous and he's powerful to save, but has no desire to save. Let's see, our God, the God of the Bible, is holy and righteous. He is powerful enough to save. And he is merciful and gracious to save sinners like you. And me, and through his son, Jesus Christ, he has made it available so that we can live. And that changes everything. Because no longer is there a pit to look forward to, but a life with him forever to look forward to. He has made salvation available through his son, Jesus Christ. He has said that we can have this. He has said all we have to do is believe in him, trust in him. Follow him, repent of our sins, and and trust and turn and follow Christ. That's the way of salvation. That's the way to receive his righteousness and give him our sin. It must happen. And every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we need to remember that this is the only way. And there's something to consider here, a footnote that I need to add. Just This is the best place it fits. We see our need. We see we're sinners in need of a Savior. We see that salvation's been made available, and all we have to do is believe in it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We just believe in Him because He is merciful and gracious. 
But there's a responsibility as we come to drink the, eat the bread and drink the cup. Paul, speaking about this very issue, writing to the Corinthian church, who, if you've read anything about the Corinthians, they were, they were, I don't know, I don't know the right word to use. They were, they were bad. Like they were as carnal as maybe Christians can be and still be called Christian. There was a mess going on in that church and, and Paul writing to them and answering questions and dealing with these issues. He, he comes to talk to them about communion or the Lord's Supper and he writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 28, he writes this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The idea here is this, and, and, and this is, as we observe communion today, I just would encourage you to just think through this. If you have never trusted and followed Christ, it is not wise, it is not good for you to take of communion. The reality is, is that every time we take communion, it proclaims, it preaches the gospel in a visual form. We remember the, the, the perfect life and we remember the shed blood. And every time we take it and every time we receive it, we confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior who can't do anything of ourselves. But for those that take it who would say, yes, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and yes, I know Jesus is the only way, but would not trust him and would not follow him, they're simply drinking more judgment upon themselves. There's a religious practice that says, oh, I'm going to do this because I don't want to be ashamed in front of people, but I'm going to do this to make myself look as if I have been saved. You're trying to save yourself through some other means. So I would suggest that if you've never trusted and followed Jesus, I'm not, I'm not, talking, about, I'm not talking about, oh, well, when I was a kid, I said this prayer and I got baptized. Right? I'm not talking about walking an aisle, you followed some religious tradition. I'm not saying that those are bad things, but if that's the only thing you've ever done and you've never truly followed Christ, if you've never become a disciple where you begin to see the converted work of Christ in your life, where you have new desires that lead to new actions, you've never seen his life in you, you've never trusted him as your savior, you continue to trust yourself. I would encourage you today and every other week that follows until you trust him that I would just encourage you to hold back from communion. Now, baptism doesn't save you. It, it, realistically, a baptism, all it is is a bath without soap. If you've not been saved, baptism hasn't saved you. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing him with your mouth, Paul writes in Romans, confessing him with your mouth and trusting in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that, that's what saves us. That's what changes us. There's a reality that there's a new life that's transposed there, that's imported there, and that person begins to live and, with living desires and, and, and living beliefs and living faith that then begins to be exercised in a life outside of their body. You must trust in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't trusted Christ and you don't walk in faith today, then I would encourage you to watch the gospel be proclaimed as those around you take of communion and then plead with Christ for faith to believe. Plead with Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and trust and begin to follow him. Because all you would be doing otherwise is drinking and eating judgment upon yourself. The thing is, is that you're not hurting anyone but yourself. We don't close the table here because this doesn't demonstrate to us that you 
ruin the remembrance for us or that you ruin the, the observance of it for anyone else, but you ruin it for yourself. So today, if you have never believed or you have believed in some tradition more than the blood and the body, the perfect life and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, if you have believed in anything else other than that, repent of your sin and trust in him. So, communion is a time to remember that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Communion is a time to remember that, that, <clears throat> that salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ. Communion is a reminder of the great cost of our salvation. The Passover gives way in memory. The Passover gives way to the covenant that was established at Sinai. They, they come up out of, the, out of the ocean. They end up and land at Mount Sinai. And they see God in power pre- present himself in cloud and fire. And they are afraid. And, and I mean, who wouldn't be, right? He enters into covenant with his people through Moses. They don't even want to talk to God. They don't want to be face to face with God. They're afraid. And they're like, hey, 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 why don't you go up for us? And Moses goes and speaks on their behalf. And, and God says, hey, I wanna, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Here's the, here's the covenant and here's the law that you're to follow. And the crazy thing about this law is that if you can read it, if, if Exodus and Leviticus give you, give you the sacrifices that I'm making, about to make reference to, you, you go back and read it. I've read it, I don't know how many times I've read through the, through the Bible in a year. I don't know, I can't, I've lost count, that's not important. But, the, but, but as I was reading this year, it became very obvious to me how, how difficult it would be for us to, to atone for our own sin through the blood of animals. But go back and read it. The number of animals that were slaughtered on behalf of people, the number of animals that were having to die, the amount of blood that was having to be spilled, and the amount of time and the amount of effort that people were having to put towards it is just crazy. I can't imagine that we'd even be going to work at a 40-hour work week because we'd be, we would be spending so much time going to the temple to, to, to kill some animal, to atone for some sin. We would never be finished. And then just as soon as we think we get caught up, there's still sin in our heart. We find it and it's revealed to us and we have to kill another animal. We're just never going to get done. The process would be never ending and the amount of bloodshed is absolutely horrendous. The suffering that's caused by our sin on the created order is disgusting. But he says this is his blood. And Peter picks up on this idea as he writes the early church. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways. Hear that? Futile, powerless, empty, meaningless. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of of Christ, the God of all the heavens, the God who created, the God who spoke things into existence, the God who who does all things according to the counsel of his own will. This God sent his son and he allowed his blood to be shed. He caused his blood to be shed. This God suffered for you and for me. The shed blood Jesus Christ, the precious blood of the Son of God was spilled. Who are we? The cost is high. There's no one who can pay this. There's no ransom high enough. You and I can't do it. 
And so this perfect God, this holy God, this righteous God, this God who had no need, who had perfect communion and perfect unity within the Godhead says we are going to do this for them. We are going to do this on their behalf. And somehow, I don't know how it actually takes place. I don't know whether they just know it or they have a conversation. Father speaks to Son. And it tells us in 1 Peter, before the foundation of the world, this takes place. Son, I love you. But together we love them so much we must suffer. Son says to the Father, I'll go. I'll put on flesh and I'll dwell among them and I'll take their sin upon me so that they can be made righteous like us. Every time we take the cup, every time we drink of the juice, of the wine, every time we eat the bread, remember the high cost of your salvation. Communion is a reminder to give thanks for what Jesus has provided to us. <laughs> After having celebrated that first Passover and then being led through the Red Sea on the dry ground and then the Israelites meeting God at the bottom of the Mount Sinai, it wasn't long before they began to grumble. And repeatedly in the, in the first five books of the Bible, you can hear them say things like, why did you lead us out here? You've led us out here to die. We don't have the meat we want. We don't have the water we want. We, we don't have what we want. You should have left us in Egypt. And every time they'd come to the Passover, they'd be reminded, no, he delivered you from oppression and slavery, from misery. But every time we come across some difficulty or some trial, some problem, we're not much different than the Israelites walking in the desert. Did you forget us, God? Like, this isn't going like I expected it to. This isn't happening the way I want it to. This is, this is not living up to my plans. This is not how I, I saw things coming out. This is, not, this is not easy, God. Did you forget me? Where are you at, God? We're like the kid on Christmas morning who's not happy with his gift and grumbles. Every time we take it, every time we put that bread to our mouth, we can remember that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, stepped into time. He took on the nature of a man. The nature, not just of any man, but a servant. He humbled himself to the point of service so that our prophet, priest, and king didn't come to be put in positions of honor, but to serve. He humbled himself even to the point of death. His blood was shed and by it. So how about we just say thank you? In fact, let's not just say it like you might say when somebody does something for you, but you're not really appreciative. Appreciative. Let's, let's let that gratitude sink into our hearts as we remember what Christ has done on our behalf. This God who should cause great fear in us has given us reason to believe in his mercy. 
and to believe that he is for our good. Thank you. And by the way, may I live my life as an act of gratitude. Communion is a time to be grateful. Just as Jesus was grateful, he says, he takes the cup, he, 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 he gives thanks because of what happened at this Passover with full knowledge of what's about to happen in this first communion. And as we take the bread and drink the cup, it's time to be grateful. Communion is a reminder that God will always fulfill his promises. The language here is, is intentional. Jesus didn't just say this is a new covenant because it sounded cool. Like he wasn't just trying to be creative. He comes in verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is Jesus saying, Today is the day that God fulfilled his promise that he made through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Do you hear that? He's making a promise. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's contrasting this new covenant with the covenant made at Sinai. My covenant, they that they broke. They didn't live up to their side. They didn't follow his law. They didn't live as God's people. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within him. I will write it on their hearts. He's going to change the hearts of men. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall one shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And there's this beautiful contrast that happens between the old covenant and the new covenant. You begin to see them spread apart and split apart where, where the old covenant was dependent upon men to, to live up to. It, was, it, it, it came with, with, uh, with, with responsibilities for them. It came with, came with things for them to do in light of it. And then in the new covenant, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant where I forgive their iniquity, where I remember their sin no more, where I write my law in their heart and they will know me. This is God's work, not a work that you and I do, not a work that we can accomplish, a work that he does. This is his new covenant wrought by Christ's blood, sealed, paid for by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a time to remember that God will always fulfill his promises. So today and every week that we come together and we drink the, eat the bread and drink the cup, it's a time to remember today, even today, whatever awaits you as you walk out that door, whatever problem, whatever difficulty, whatever circumstance you walk into when you leave this building, his promises will be fulfilled. You will be saved by his son. This is as close to his wrath as any Christian will ever come. And the beauty of it, I didn't tell this to the first service. I say that a lot. You guys hear me say this is as bad as it ever gets. But even this is God's good for you. Even the trials and the struggles and the, and, the, and the problems that he allows in your life, they are his grace to kill your flesh that your new person might live. 
you will never know his wrath. That is his promise to you, his child. And every time we take this cup and eat this bread, know his promises are always fulfilled. And finally, communion is a reminder that one day we will feast with Jesus. I called this out as I was reading through two times as he's preparing through this and walking through the sequence. He says, I'm not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled. I'm not going to drink of it until it's fulfilled. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of debate around what this is talking about, whether it means after he's uh, risen from the dead or whatever, and, and, and is he looking at, you know, because the, the, he will eat in front of them later, or those, are those instances that he's talking about. I, I think that's wrong. I'm not the only one. It's not like I'm doing something about myself. Don't misunderstand. I would love to give you the resources later. I'm of the mind that he's painting a picture and pointing to the time where we sit in his kingdom, in his presence, and we sit at the table with the spot that's been reserved for each of us. I think this is referring to Revelation 19.9 where he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb because I believe that the last Passover gave way to the first communion that points to the final supper where we celebrate the marriage. Our bridegroom comes to get us and takes us to be with him forever and we are never separated from him again. And it says in Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who, that's almost like an understatement, like that Blessed, we don't even know what that word means. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You have a spot at the table. You have a reservation held for you by the power of God through your faith. You will walk into heaven and you will sit down at the table that the chair is, I don't know if it has your name on it or not, but you've got a chair waiting for you. Maybe there's a place marker. You're going to sit down and you're going to be able to raise a cup and you're going to be able to say, thank you, God. And that cup, there will never be a reason to put it down if you don't want to. Because you will see him sitting there. You'll see him with your own eyes. You will be able to hear him with your own ears. You'll even be able to walk up and hug him with your own arms. You see, communion is a reminder that one day we will feast with Jesus at a feast that will never end. So, keeping all of that in mind, let's observe communion. And let's remember all that he has done and all that he's made possible. So, we're going to do it a little different today. I go ahead and ask the pastors, and, and I believe there's a couple of deacons that are going to help serve in this, in this uh, service. If you guys will just come forward. We're going to pass it out. And as we pass it, oh, they're bringing it from the back. Uh, as we pass it, we're going to take it together. We're going to take time to thank him, to remember him, and let the gospel be proclaimed among us. And it says in verse, well, I'm at the wrong place. I've closed my Bible too soon. It says in verse 19, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
So he passes the bread. gave thanks not because their meal was taking on some special form this is a cracker it doesn't become the body of Christ the juice will not become the blood of Christ he's not possessing it in some spiritual way we are not transubstantiationists we're not consubstantiationists we recognize this to represent him and call us to remember Remember that we're sinners in need of a Savior, to remember that salvation has been provided, to remember the great cost of our salvation, to remember to be grateful, to remember that his promises are fulfilled in Christ, and to remember that one day this little cracker and this little cup of juice is going to be replaced by a feast that he has prepared for us. Jesus, thank you. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us the way that you've loved us. Thank you for giving so generously and graciously and mercifully. Thank you for paying the ransom for us. Thank you that we have access to you through Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, and our sacrificial lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing men to grab a hold of you and nail you to a cross and raise you up and spit on you and mock you. Thank you for taking our sin and giving us your righteousness. Thank you. He said, take, eat. This is my body. Do it in remembrance of me. And then he passed the cup.
seated. He passed the cup and he said, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Take, drink. It's because of Jesus Christ that we don't have to run and hide in the deepest, darkest depths that we can find. It's because of Jesus Christ that we have hope for tomorrow. It's because of Jesus Christ that we can stand in the presence of a perfect and righteous God with confidence that he is for our good. Let's pray. We are blessed. Blessed to be counted among your number, Father. Blessed by the presence of your spirit among us. Blessed by the memory of what you have done for us. Preserve us, God. Preserve us so we might see you with our own eyes. And we might stand in your presence without the division and the dark glass that divides us. That our faith would become sight. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, spirit, by your power. Amen.